Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indie. Indie Game Business has one of the longest-running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all those speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. years and brought up a really good point on our discord i guess months ago at this point <laughs> but you know there's a ton that a good publisher will do for you outside of just giving you money and marketing your game and get my mic over here where it's remotely near my mouth and and so that's what we're going to talk about today so welcome Junie, and and we're going to start where we always start talk talk to us about how you got into the industry and then walk yep. us through your career up, up till now. I was expecting that one. So I actually thought about what to say. Um, I started as a computer science uh, bachelor. I uh, also took math, but quickly dropped that to be able to organize events on the side. Um, and along the way during my bachelor's, I discovered that programming wasn't my thing. I liked the academia. I liked the math. I liked the theory. But the actual coding was best left to other people. So naturally... I decided to also do a master's degree in it. <laughs> um, along the side, I did always organize game dev events. So I've been organizing events in the Dutch game industry for, or I organized until I joined Sedesco, um, events for like seven years. So I organized uh, events, for example, for like 20 companies to meet up with 200 students and then just go forth and find internship placements. Um, I also organized a conference for four years by students for students. It was called Indie Development. Uh, we grew it out from 250 to eventually 1,000 people. Um, and at the end of the last year, uh, Sodesco was actually one of the sponsors. They organized um, or at least sponsored um, the Indie Development Awards that we had. And my LinkedIn profile said, I am looking for a job because I'm starting because I've almost graduated. So my business development colleague now uh, Hans noticed that and it was like, "Hey, you can organize things. Maybe you can be a producer with us." And I thought, I have no idea what a producer does. If they organize things, maybe I can do it. <laughs> and here we are, four and a half years later. Yeah, we hired many producers back in the day when I was working as a publisher straight out of GameStop. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, okay, you're somewhat familiar with a game. Uh, congratulations, now you're a producer. Mm -hmm. It's it's 
until very, very recently, there was no real career path to becoming a, a game producer. It's, it's you, you basically looked around the office and said, okay, who has the best all-around knowledge of the game development process? And then more specifically, who has organization skills that are, you know, yeah better than the rest of us and, and that's that's who got to be our producers so walk us through a little bit of what a producer does a good producer and a publisher and so because that's going to lend into a lot of what we talk about but but right. in your daily course of working with developers you know what is it that you do other than yell at them to not miss their milestones <laughs> right so something to note is something that we're noticing with a lot of our uh, producers as well is that a publishing producer is a little bit different from a development producer you need the same core set of skills you have indeed have to have some sort of organizational sense um, you need to be able to take a lot of information and create order out of it um, but you also need to be very comfortable with doing your primary mode of communication online so most of what we do in communication is either discord skype email and that you need to be comfortable with that with making your point in words uh, that are written or over a phone call rather than in person and with a lot of the development producers that i've ended up uh, being in touch with they are the people that are on the floor between the people so they have much more more um, visible impact on the team that they work with. Uh, on the same time, on the uh, the, pr the publishing side, we also have our fingers in a lot of pies. So we work with platform holders, with service providers, with all sorts of people all across the world. So it's just really a nuance of, of where you want to be. And that also means that um, the most of the work that we do with developers is um, from start to finish manage the uh, the development planning, the release planning, making sure that everything is ready in time for uh, actual release. And usually that's across platforms. Um, so we give all sorts of warnings like, hey, you have to think about this thing. And hey, is your localization sheet get it ready yet? Um, is your build entirely ready to request age ratings with? Um, are you ready for doing compliance? testing externally um, are you missing anything like do you want to add more to your soundtrack do you need some sort of additional art assets to make sure that you don't miss this milestone um, and of course everything gearing up to getting ready for a submission as well uh, so what a lot of developers don't realize is that the submission process it can be pretty lengthy and there are different uh, hiccups to all the different platforms um, and you have to do a lot of things in parallel all of a sudden uh, so we also help with that and uh, let's see what else on the on the producing side um, of course, we support uh, the marketing and PR team for everything with regards to testing with the public. So things like um, from the smallest private play tests to the biggest uh, open betas, we will be making sure that the build doesn't crash when you start it up. Uh, so whenever an update goes live, it actually does something for people. Um, we also help organize feedback. Uh, we're on the, the tech support side as well so whenever marketing and pr and the community management guys can't entirely figure out what's going on we'll be there in the you know, on the fringe to make sure that we can figure things out as soon as possible so otherwise 
probably everything that doesn't fit any other department. <laughs> yeah, I, back back in the day, I was <clears throat> a producer and an executive producer, and I, I have the utmost respect for you because it's a shit ton of work, and and, and it's just absolutely many times managing chaos and. It's 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 a very unsung hero aspect of game development. Because I saw something when I was at um over at, at GIC and and someone was talking about they introduced themselves and this I guess it was a consumer I think it was at EG, the conversation happened at EGX and they were like well what do you do with the game and and the person was like well. I'm a producer and they're like, oh, so you don't actually do anything on the game development side. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, except for making sure it all comes together into something that's cohesive and, and, and a game. So when developers are out there looking, you know, for their ideal publisher for their game, mm-hmm. and, and we've talked a lot about making sure that they have you know, a publisher who's on the right you know, platform and who's got experience with the right genre and who, you know, is you want to make sure that they've got the budget. Your your budget is in their buzzer budget comfort range. What's the next most important thing to for them to be thinking of when they when they're sorting this triage list of going through the, through it? Yeah. Um, for me, I think it's about finding a partner that fits with you with what you're looking for. Um, are you looking for something long-term? Are you just looking for someone for just this one project? Uh, for us, it's absolutely about the long-term. We always try to find, uh, we, we want to spotlight or we want to choose project that projects that fit with us, but we also want to find people that fit with us. So we want to find those teams that uh, outside of that first project that might have a lot of potential will also, um, you know, long term uh, have more projects that they want to do with us so we can invest in that in that long term relationship. Uh, And that means opening that dialogue about, hey, what is it that you can do? And what it is it that you think we can help with? And if you don't know, then talk to us about what you think or we might be able to do, we may not be able to do, or just ask us, like, hey, what else is there that you can do? Um, and as long as that that communication feels open and honest, that then we can get a very long way. So as long as you... Um, Keep, keep communicating and keep an open mind and, and just engage in that dialogue about how is this partnership going to work now and in the long term. Um, that, that will usually get you a pretty, di- pretty distance. So where in the process should they bring that up? Because I know a lot of developers and a lot of people in general, they're less comfortable talking about what they can't do than what they can do. So... You know, generally when, when we're sending these projects out, there's an introduction email or, uh, <clears throat> sorry, there's an intro email or maybe you met at a conference and, and you're getting the ball rolling. Are these questions that need to be addressed or, or, or put forward in that initial pitch 
in that initial uh, submission or i'm not i'm not sure what the the best way would be just yet i mean we've only been doing this for four and a half years and our projects have been growing since so we're still um every project is a unicorn we're still le learning a lot of stuff every every single project um what we have done so far is usually that um, our business development uh, colleague, Hans, uh, he will be talking about the financials, about just the general scope of the project, um, see if that's a fit for both our timeline and our budget, which are usually, uh, they're very big topics, but they're also discussed pretty quickly. So uh, they don't take a lot of back and forth. It might still um, take months to actually work out the deal, but the amount of information that needs to be exchanged is a lot smaller, which means that only he needs to be involved, so it happens all the way at the beginning. After that very important hefty part is out of the way, that budget part, um, that's when I get introduced, and then I will be digging in deeper, and I will be trying to figure out, hey, what are the, the technical details? Uh, how is your registration so far? Uh, are you using any licensed material? What kind of plugins are you using? What's the state of the engine and the SDK? Uh, and it just drill down very deep to see, like, is there anything that could be a risk? Uh, are there any points in the budget that we might have to reserve uh, and that is the kind of dialogue where I would ideally like the developer to also engage with us and not just provide us with all the answers to the the questions that I'm asking but also ask us questions like hey if you do localization then uh, what kind of languages do you, are you thinking of um, if you're going to do testing what do you have in mind and why um, if you maybe think uh, the amount of music that we currently have wouldn't suffice for a standalone soundtrack, who are you thinking of asking to add to it and how would that work? Uh, if you have any questions about finding someone else to support you with your development through us, ask them. So that would be the point for us. So it would definitely be pre-sign, um, but it wouldn't be the first uh, 20 emails back and forth. <laughs> so what the, like, one of the things you just mentioned, and, and I'm cheating, of course, because I have this big old gigantic long list of all the stuff that you read off earlier. But when, you know, you're asking that question of what other types of, you know, things can we help through Sodesco? Which, what are you generally looking at? I mean, we've talked about localization a lot, mm -hmm. um, but what are some, what are some of the top, you know, without diving into this entire list that we have immediately, mm -hmm. what are some of the top, you know, big things that developers aren't generally aware of or thinking of when they start going, go to the publisher? So the things that we do for every single project are always um, getting translations. So that is definitely all the way at the top. Um, but that is closely followed by getting the age ratings in, in particular. And with that, I don't just mean ESRB and PEGI or an IARC rating. With that, I also mean Taiwan and the Arabic territories and just about anything you can think of, because by now I think we're tracking 15. Um, oh, really? And that, that makes it possible for your game to launch in a lot more territories than before. Um, we also get external testing done, and there are so many flavors of testing you can't even count them anymore. So 
you have to figure out what fits with this project. How far is it? What kind of testing are they, have they done? What kind of testing does it still need? Um, how much experience does that team have? And those are basically the three that almost every project will have in addition to just submission management of making sure that your build is ready for submission, making sure that it passes all the preliminary checks just to save you time uh, in the entirety of the submission process. And then, of course, managing uh, the actual uploading, completing the documentation, uh, making sure that it the slots are booked. Um, none of that is rocket science, but we do it 10 times a year, which also means that we might just do it a little bit more efficiently. We might know a bit more of the tips and tricks. Um, so those are, are the things that we tend to always do. Um, and from there, it's really, as I said, every project is a unicorn. And it's really just whatever a single project needs uh, where we're able to support. So question on age ratings. Since we've had the rise of digital distribution, are age ratings required for digital sales like on Steam or through platforms, or is it still just kind of a retail thing? That depends on the platform. So some platforms enforce them, and they enforce them in different ways. So for uh, console, uh, Nintendo allows you to use an IARC rating, which is just uh, a question, an online questionnaire that you have to complete. Um, for uh, Steam, you're not obliged to have any ratings at all. Um, for the other consoles, uh, you do actually have to have certain ratings to be able to release at all. You don't have to have all of them, not all of the ones that you would also need for retail, but you do have to have some of them. And then for mobile, I, I know that IARC uh, suffices as well. Hold on, I'm actually looking that up because I'm not familiar with IARC ratings. Uh, it's the International Age Rating Coalition. So it's a recent initiative, like one or two years old. No, probably a bit older, maybe three. Um, it is basically digital only, uh, and it's a combination of most of the biggest territories that are out there. They don't support all platforms for all ratings, however, which is something that I tell them regularly. So is it cheaper or more expensive? Because I know a lot of the... the... IARC is free. It's free? All right, well, that's, that's a no-brainer then. I know yeah, a lot but... of these... It doesn't help. It, it doesn't yet help you, for example, with PlayStation, at all. With what? I'm sorry, you cut out. PlayStation. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Um, does Does Microsoft take it? Off the top of my head, yes. I'm not sure if that applies for all kinds of games, apps, and projects. I think so, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Anyway. Just, you know, that, that that's our first tangent of the day. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I wasn't aware of that one. And we get that question a lot because people just don't know anymore. They know, obviously, at retail, but a lot of indie devs aren't thinking towards retail. They're just thinking of online. And so that's one that, that comes up. Um, yeah, but even so, like... For a lot of developers, especially when they're first confronted with IARC, they will just click, 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 click throughout the, the, the questionnaire, which is a multiple choice kind of deal, but they don't actually understand the gravity of it. So 
what we do is we make a very thorough assessment of what the game is to make sure that the right rating gets assigned for the right territory so you don't get slapped with fines afterwards. So, for example, if there is uh, a game with several different characters and one of those characters has an alternative that has, uh, like, an alternate skin that has a cigarette, and you sort of neglect to mention that or you forget or you don't consider it to be pertinent even if the rating is free you can still get in trouble for not reporting that and that's the kind of thing where we um, make sure that we go through the game with a fine uh, grain comb, comb to make sure that we actually get everything so even if if it becomes easier and free to get your game rated and therefore out on all the platforms, still doesn't mean that you actually got the rating the right way. So we've got a question from just a game developer over on Twitch. He says, what happens to a developer when a game flops? Um, well, they uh, either get a different job or they will scrape together what they have, hopefully a buffer, and try again, I would think. All right, so I'll, I'll take a spin on that, too. Are there things that you've done in the past, that, you know, things that you've seen in the past to try to salvage some of these titles? When you, when you launch initially and it's like you're not getting the initial launch that you're not getting that traction that you wanted to mm -hmm. get is are there things that you can do to try to adjust course or is it generally one of those okay, right this so this not gonna fly uh it entirely depends on what kind of platforms we have but we try to make sure that the projects that we have uh have a certain viability and because of that we already mini minimize risk on the front end by uh, making sure that we do as many platforms as we we can to reduce the risk because you are using the same amount of effort on uh, different channels um, and then when a project is of a certain production value certain price point we will also do retail which also helps press the risk uh, and then afterwards as soon as it's launched we don't tip wait we lost you or is that me no, no, she froze up. For the long term of uh, the long tail for sales. Uh, and we make sure that we're participating. We have a solid discounting strategy. We make sure that we're in the different seasonal sales, but also in the different um, uh, sales that you can um, sort of shoot in yourself. Uh, what we also do is we make sure that we have different SKUs. Uh, so we don't just have a base game, but we also have, for example, a deluxe edition that contains a little bit of extra content. Doesn't even have to be in-game content. Could be an art book or a soundtrack or something like that, which then allows you to be in more sales. So you're you're generating more revenue over time, uh, even if you don't don't have additional DLC, for example, to push your attention. Um, in that SKU strategy as well, if you do have the, the opportunity to do DLC, you'll be able to uh, drive your existing player base with that DLC, but the DLC will also end up back in the newest releases list for some of the platforms, where it will also get you more attention uh, all, all over again. All right, so that's a, you just touched on one point that I think a lot of developers overlook that's actually extremely super important 
you know, from the publisher side, and that is managing all of these seasonal sales. It used to be that Steam did one in the summer, and now they do two or three, and Epic has one. Absolutely. How many of these stores and seasonal sales do you all track on the digital side? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but uh, of course we we primarily do console and Steam. Um, so those are our uh, top places to be and look out for them. Uh, I would have to ask Hans to uh, my colleague to uh, for exact details on that. But yeah, something else that works there is knowing the platform holder, talking to them a lot, and then making sure that you can actually get as much exposure as possible, uh, talk to them about what kind of strategies are best to apply given their uh, data that they have. Um, and with that, you know, even if one title hasn't done very well at the beginning, if you have another title that's doing well, that's where having a publisher can help because at that point, we will be talking to them about this big thing that we've got going on. And then we'll say, how about you also add this previous title in the same sale because that could benefit both of us. So that's another thing where uh, post-launch, even for a title that may not have done so well at the beginning, it could still do something else later on in the down the line. Yeah, and it's a it's a huge part of everything because you know, like everything else in life, it's it's less often what you know and more often who you know. And because you know you're launching, like you said, you know. 10 games a year, or however many you've got going on, you're dealing with Steam a lot more than, you know, a developer is or Humble or, or GOG or, or whoever it may be. And so having that extra relationship in there and, and that champion going to them and saying, hey, look, like you said, let's add this other game to the list as well. Um, that's a that's a huge benefit for for developers. And and that's not just with platform holders. That's something that we try and do um, with just in general outreach. When someone's interested in this one horror game and they want a key for it that we've got coming up, um, and they uh, write about it and they give good feedback then we'll reach out to them again and say, hey, we also did this other horror game a couple months ago. Um, how about you try this out and give us some feedback for that as well? So it's, it's really not just platform holders, it's, it's a much more broad approach. So with, you know, the we talked about the platform holders, the hardware, what if a developer comes to you and even though the game is being done in Unity or Unreal, they've really only planned for a PC version. You know, we know that it's best to have it out there on as many platforms as possible, but how do you go about trying to find the support that team needs to go ahead and get a version for, you know, Switch or PlayStation or Xbox? Right. So, of course, the most ideal situation would be that they do it themselves, but that only is that is really only feasible if they already have someone on the team that has some experience with it. And uh, 
that isn't always the case. Uh, sometimes, depending on the deal structure, you may still want to consider having them do it themselves. For example, if they have uh, a team that has a lot of experience in general, for example, porting to mobile, just not to console yet, um, then you could, and they are perhaps in a in a territory where um, investing some money in a, into a couple months learning curve isn't that expensive then you could still consider like having them figure it out on their own if not then we can of course find the right porting partner and for that we will find uh porting partners that have particular experience with that engine that platform um so it could be a porting partner that only works with Unity, but it could also be a port porting partner that specializes in proprietary engines or in something much more color colorful like uh, HTML5 or uh, GameMaker or Cocos, and then um, make sure that we, we have the right fit in that sense. Um, there are also places that specialize, for example, in doing the optimization for Switch uh, that comes with uh, having to down downscale uh, whatever the game is to make sure that it runs so there there are a lot of uh ways that you can help devs bring their projects to other platforms all right, all right hans is watching now so we have to stop talking about him you know <laughs> now he's gonna hear us um how important is it to simultaneously launch now on all these platforms versus launching on a primary platform and then following up with you know the other platforms later mm, that would also be something that Hans has more uh, insight on than i do but in general again every project is a unicorn so there are different strategies that work best for every different project sometimes um like of course ideally you want to do everything at once making that splash uh having all your marketing budget focused on that one launch is going to generally be the best way but if your project needs more attention beforehand sometimes the best route to market is just doing that early access on steam first and then um, sometimes even releasing pc first or postponing the pc full pc release until you've got the ports ready. So it depends. And it's it's also not like um, that particular launch moment is so important that we wouldn't consider titles that have already launched. Um, it, it's not a blocker for us. Uh, if we see the potential, then having it sim ship across platforms isn't at the all the way at the top of the list. So yeah, and, and we've seen that change in the last five or ten years. It, it used to be that if a developer had launched anything, you know, even like early access, we all the publishers would be like, "No, we don't want it. You've already launched it. We've missed the window. We can't do anything. It's a giant waste of time. Go away." And now that's not the case. I mean, we we work with some publishers who actually only look for games that have already launched to try to give them a bit of a a second wind um yeah that that applies for us too like i won't say that we're absolutely not we're looking for just about everything but um it helps for us if there is a game for example that is launched on steam either in early access or for a full release and we can see that it 
is already proving itself um it already has like 80 percent positive plus um so it already has uh just some sort of yeah i guess proof that that it's fun uh it has a small community then we've got something to build off of and you know with the amount of new titles that are releasing on what any given day uh that launch moment is not necessarily as important anymore as long as you get you maximize the visibility that you get after launch so we're, we're seeing sometimes sales uh, match or even exceed the launch day so we might as well um, take a look at the project, see if whatever we can we can still do with. That's interesting. So we got a couple um, questions from chat. Uh, one of them is from Corundum Games. So in other words, if you're using a common engine like Unity and are willing to do the port yourself but have no experience doing so, is that a net positive? Um, well, having experience doing it, it would be the biggest positive, of course. Um, having your game in Unity tends to be easier than having a custom engine. So I think you're, the, the question is kind of separate parts. The part about it being in Unity, that is definitely uh, useful because there's a lot of porting studios that specialize in it. Um, not having porting experience itself isn't necessarily a positive, but it's also not a blocker. Interesting. A lot of these questions, and even when I gave my lecture last week in Poland, I was like, I'm going to talk to you for an hour now about this stuff, but go ahead and understand that the majority of the questions are answered with, it depends, because yeah. there's no, there's, there's never an easy answer. So, um, all right, so keep going, Andy. Okay. Yeah. The next question was from Just a Game Developer. How much muscle does Sadesco actually have in marketing? Steam algorithm has destroyed indies pretty much, and Switch games generally sell themselves. How much more does it actually help going with a publisher like Sadesco and saying you have localization connections and can develop on other platforms yourself? Uh, so I intentionally did not want to go into the marketing and PR and the, and the budget part because that is what every developer asks for. Um, for us, it's more about the entire strategy of helping you bring the game to market with everything else that needs doing. So the marketing um, muscle that will entirely depend on the project. There are genres that we're more familiar with. There are genres that we uh, would be ha are exploring that we're happy to to work with. Um, and there's a very select group of titles that we we don't tend to work with, and we're also very open and transparent about that. Um, so it's it's really about finding the strengths both with the dev and with us, um, and then what additional value we bring to the table would be everything else that we can do um that isn't necessarily always very obvious um such as a bunch of the things that we've been talking about so far i mean i'll dive in on that one just a little bit because i actually don't agree with two of those points the, the steam algorithm has changed but it hasn't destroyed indies by by any stretch of imagination i mean i'm sitting here looking at the top selling on steam right now and two point hospital which is a you know very 
indie title is in the top 10. Uh, Disco Elysium is in the global top selling. I mean, you're always going to have titles from the major publishers selling more because they have more marketing. But, you know, there's Steam hasn't necessarily destroyed indies. It's, it's just a matter of everybody has to adapt and everybody always has to adapt. And Switch games don't sell themselves. I mean, you look at how many games are on Switch now. I mean, a year Absolutely. ago, year and a half ago, you could get away with releasing, you know, pretty much anything. But now the Switch eStore is so cluttered and overpopulated that it's absolutely not a given that just because you release something it's going to get seen so yeah so so i guess the the answer to the muscle question switch is a good example for that like right now it's not a given that you're going to get access to a switch development kit you're going to that your project is going to get greenlit because the shop is flooded so fast they have to start doing a little bit of curation about what is going to actually end up there and we can help uh, developers actually get that access um, and similarly we can help you get through the submission process more smoothly and then after you've launched uh, we can help you get that visibility again by monitoring your sales and uh, the seasonal ones and the regular ones that you can do. So you don't have to spend any of that time and therefore you can focus on your next game. So as I mentioned, it's, it's not necessarily uh, rocket science, but it's time where we can use our experience, our time to help you do what needs to be done to maximize the potential while you can do what you do best and not have to spend a couple hours every week making sure that you're in sales and you can spend that time actually creating your next game. Which which becomes more than just a couple of hours every week the more things keep going down this path. Um, all right, let's talk about retail and because retail is something that you know really died off for a while but now it's starting to come back you know we're seeing you know more physical copies going out even things like blizzard releasing a this is just asinine to me i'm sorry but blizzard releasing a physical copy of overwatch for the switch that does not contain a mm -hmm. cartridge it's just a piece of plastic I mean, just, you know, environmentalism aside, that just blows my mind. But we've also had a rise of companies like Limited Run Games that are doing these special editions. So mm -hmm. I know 10, 15 years ago, sitting down and coming up with special editions where we had this gigantic box and it had like mm -hmm. a map in it and all kinds of other random shit that, that got put in, in these boxes. That was a huge part of everything. And then it went away. So how, you know, are you seeing retail come back? And I'm not talking about actual like sales numbers here, but you know, when we're talking about good publishers that can help us with SKU strategy and retail submission and all of these things that actually, you know, what makes a good special edition, a good special edition, mm -hmm. how has that changed lately? And, and, and how, are, how are you attacking that aspect of it? So 
So I can't really speak for the market on the whole because I don't have all that information myself. Um, we, <laughs> our team is pretty big by now. We're 30 plus. So we have people that are specialized in all of those fields. So we have uh, two people for sales. We have someone for merchandising um, to make sure that they are at the, the top of their game. Um, Overall, I think, of course, retail is in decline, but there's still a lot of market out there. Um, what we can never forget is that there's a whole lot of people out there that may not necessarily consider themselves gamers, but they do have to buy gifts for people. Uh, so they do wander into store like giving that physical thing more than get just giving a, a card with a code on it. It's still um, a very different market um, that doesn't necessarily entirely overlap with the digital market out there. So it is still a lot of potential there. Um, and with regards to uh, special edition, I have no idea how it was in 15 years because I haven't been in the industry that long. But for us, uh, as Sodesco, with our history, um, Sodesco originally was started as a, an accessories label. Uh, it would do bundles together with, uh, it would package a game together with some accessories. And it's something that's been coming back um, for every console generation since where um, simply doing merchandise, there's a much bigger margin on that, which means that it only makes sense to package um, your game with some additional content to be able to get a bit more revenue from that as well. So there, there is really no reason not to uh, explore whatever opportunity you have as long as the product is even suitable for the retail market to begin with. So from the production standpoint, how does shipping for retail differ than shipping for digital? Um, it takes more time. So there, uh, it, it begins with uh, all the way at concept submission, you have to get approval for uh, doing retail, which also means that you need a certain kind of agreement uh, with each of the different platform holders to be able to do them. And then the actual concept for retail has to get approved. Um, after that, your submission is also a little different because your build uh, that you submit with them has to be suitable for retail as well. Um, requires a couple extra uh, um, submission checks. Um, you have to be gold a lot sooner. So for example, if you want to do um, a console retail version that can be anywhere between two to sometimes eight weeks um, before your actual release time to be able to manufacture everything, ship it everywhere. And then if you're doing a special edition, you can add anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, um, if it's just uh, a soundtrack or a manual that you add within the box, then that's one thing. But if you start adding bigger things or particularly things that require um, your uh, additional content to uh, match, for example, European legislation, such as plushies or uh, materials with metals in them, you're going to have months and months of lead time running up to your release. It's also something that's very unusual when we hear a lot of indie devs. It's like, oh, we hit gold, and now in one week we're going to release. And for us, that's a little <laughs> unusual because usually on the on the product the producing side, by the time a game releases, we've been done for two months. 
<laughs> so we'll still be working on like patches and DLC, of course. But for us, like the base game, yeah, we had to be gold like weeks ago to be able to make that ship date. It's it's funny. All the stuff that you're rattling off just makes me even more thankful that I haven't produced a game in ten years. Because <laughs> I just it's like the thought of oh wait we're gonna put this plushie in here. Wait a minute, you know France says we can't do that because yeah. it might catch fire, and I'm like oh what? No, just make games. But yeah, I mean you're right. I mean that's what I remember back in the day when you had to have this time of year everything absolutely had to be on the shelf by the second week of november yeah. or you were basically screwed because you missed black friday and and all of that kind of stuff that went along and yeah if we didn't have submissions done the first of september yeah you weren't going to make it that was it you know you're you're going to q1 and so <coughs> It obviously hasn't gotten simpler in, in, in the time since then, but we did have a nice little from, from what I've heard, some of the things have gotten easier. So There's more uh, things now. That's the yes. problem. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, getting it onto a disc and getting it to the store has got to have gotten a lot cheaper, in the, I mean, a lot easier in the last 10 years, but there's just so much other stuff that yeah. you factor into and this is where we come into these are these these discussions are great because it lets people understand what they don't know and it's like you know even me i'm sitting here learning things we used to deal with esrb and peggy ratings outside mm -hmm. of that didn't matter you know just go and, and and do it and now you know there's a different one for korea there's one for japan there's the iart there's all of this stuff that you don't have, even as a developer, you simply don't have time to think about, much less execute. You know, a lot of the developers that we're working with, it's two people. And so they hire people like my firm because they need help on the business side and they can't, you know, manage everything on their own. And this is just a whole nother wave of it. You know, we're not at the point where you finish a game, you upload it to Steam, you hit launch, and then you go and collect your money. You know, it, it, it's it's a very, very complex world that we're, we're dealing with here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we don't see necessarily see um, don't necessarily always see that that developer publisher relationship like two different beasts we are an extension of your team or that's ideally what we're supposed to be so you've got your artists you've got your designers and then you've also got the people that are taking care of all the assets that you have to create for the storefronts because you need like 240 of them to be able to launch everywhere um we want to be your support on every everything else that needs to happen to be able uh, for your game to be able to go live. So that would be ratings, that would be translations, but that would also be making sure that if your artist gets sick and you need uh, 20 more 3D models like this, then we can probably find that partner for you. We're, we're not here to be um, some sort of monster that just takes money from you. We want to work with you and help your team get your game to market in the best way possible. And that's a very, very important point because publishers are typically seen as, oh my God, here's this company that's gonna take 30% of our revenue and you know what are they actually doing? And yeah. coming from someone who deals with literally 650 plus publishers globally, 
there's a gigantic difference between a good publisher that wants to be involved and and cares about this sort of stuff and one who's just going to ship something and when you it's it's like everything else in life when someone else has to put a lot of their own time or money into something you're going to get a better result and you know with publishers like sedesco and and that you know size company that that we're talking about it's very painful for you if a game if a developer doesn't do i mean if a game doesn't do well just as it's bad for yeah, the developer so you know when you're not launching 30 games a year you know it, it's one of those things where there has to be a very symbiotic relationship between you know develop the developer and the publisher because everybody's got a lot to lose here yeah i mean when i say we have a team of 30 people that also means we have a team of 30 people to feed all of these people well okay when it's a digital only title it might not be the entire 30 because every everyone that specialized on the retail side may not be involved but we have always at least 20 people that are working on a title that we sign and that will be a community manager the marketing manager uh, PR it will be people in graphics it will be the person helping with trailers we'll have several producers and several interns that are helping with preparing builds for submission but we also have um, someone for finance someone for sales uh, biz dev to be able to talk to platform holders there's so many people that we also have to feed on our side that we also have to sustain that for us it's key that our projects do well like it's not just for the developers i mean we're here to make sure that we survive as a business too which we all want to do and, and we just saw i mean sadly this came up yesterday uh backflip studios went out of business i guess they announced it yesterday and if you think back and you remember two years ago or three years ago backflip was on top of the world because like, for two years in a row dragon veil was one of the biggest um, mobile games in the market and they had tons of money coming in but you know they made it what five years in in the industry maybe 10 but it's it's there are you know very serious consequences to having a bad a, a project go poorly both from the developer side and the publisher side yeah absolutely. Um, so I'm, 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 what you've got the same list I do right now. Look at it, and there's so mm -hmm. much stuff on here that you do. What do you think is is the next biggest aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet? Because we could sit here and go through all of it, but we'll mm -hmm. be here for two hours. Uh, <laughs> um, well, something that we're currently expanding on is the different kinds of ways that we're engaging with the public before um, releasing. So something that we've recently done is several uh, private, closed, open betas, uh, playtesting rounds. So that's something where we are uh, doing more and more. And from that, we're gathering more and more feedback, um, not just the functional testing, like the bug testing, making sure that everything works the way it's supposed to, but also providing a lot more feedback on how the mechanics are, if they're fun, if... Um, there should be several different levels of difficulty. Uh, and from there, we are also gaining more and more experience in uh, supporting developers with 
not not really creating the actual game concept, but polishing it and and um, you know even just some some narrative support where a, a team maybe isn't that very that big and they're not entirely confident that their plot line um, is working out in the game as well as they want where. We are now, uh, well, of course, we always gave feedback ourselves, but we're also able to help um, get that community backing for uh, the team to feel like, hey, we're heading in the right direction, or maybe this and that section could use some polishing to make sure that we're actually delivering that experience that we had in mind. So that is something that we've recently been working on a lot. Um, and that, of course, also comes with, it depends for every single project uh, what you need. Um, some projects are um, created by a very, very small development team, so they can really no longer see the forest through the trees. Um, means that a lot of uh, having some extra pairs of eyes already helps a lot. Uh, and some projects have a bigger, more experienced development team, and then it really just comes down to balancing the finest details by finding the perfect um, players that know that genre through and through. So that's something that we've, that we've recently been doing a lot. So, I mean, years ago, everything was done through closed betas. And you, well, you would start and you do like a friends and family beta, then you do a closed beta, and then you do an open beta before you went live. How much of that is still done given the rise of early access now? Uh, for us, it entirely depends on the project and what it needs. So for some projects, uh, some genres, it doesn't make sense to do uh, an open beta, for example, because it's a short experience, it's linear, so by the time that someone's played through it once, then maybe you don't, you have no reason to buy it anymore or you don't uh you've already seen it all um so for every single project that we sign we'll talk to the developer to see what kind of strategy makes sense uh and sometimes that indeed involves doing the very small and then the the maybe the closed maybe the open um but sometimes early access is the right way to go too so it it i think rather than having the same model for everything it's moved to something where it's going to be custom for every every project which in turn you know ramps up the, the difficulty and the complexity of of everything on, on that side um when it comes to things like com community support and i know that gets wrapped into marketing you know in a lot of cases but where do you start getting the community involved? How do you manage that feedback loop to the developer? And, you know, because that, I mean, that factors into the open and closed betas and the early access, but assuming you've got something that is in early access, how does, how does that feedback loop work when it comes to tweaking things like balance and, and a lot of those issues that you brought up? For us, what we try to help with is making sure that we are able to gather all the feedback because, you know, you're you're getting so much feedback from all different kinds of channels. Discord is helping with that a lot. So um, 
a lot of players actually find their way to a game's Discord, but that still means you have the Steam Community Hub, you have different two, two different support addresses that um, feed up, feedback ends up in, and uh, sometimes people are talking to a developer directly, maybe Twitter, maybe other social channels. So the first thing we do is help gather all the feedback and make sure that we also um, tally what kind of things are coming in from multiple people to make sure that we've got the um, the pain points, the th things that stand out to multiple people, um, that we've got those highest on the list. Um, also, like sometimes a lot of reports come in that on the surface appear to be different, but then when you dig into them, they actually appear to be the same. Um, so we'll help put together cohesive reports that actually make sense to a developer, and then we provide them with an entire list of, hey, these are all the things that, that we've noticed, both internally and from the people that are uh, reporting stuff to you, to us. Um, these is, this is how we would prioritize them, and then talk to the developer about what kind of things um, should be tackled first? How much time is that going to take? What are the different solutions that you might be able to offer? Because a developer might say like, hey, I want to solve this the perfect way, but it's going to take three months and I don't have that three months right now. So we could talk to them like, okay, so what are the alternatives? Are Is there a way that we can um, mitigate the pain? So at least the player isn't stuck on it anymore. Um, see if we can implement that quickly and then postpone the bigger fix until later. Um, and then after that, at some point, uh, the developer will have uh, a version um, with a bunch of uh, fixes in it. Um, we, we will either, uh, depends on, on if the project is out in early access or not. So if it's out in early access, we might be um, happier to just push it to the public because the public is aware that it's early access. So they are going to see things that aren't final yet. Um, but if it's a project that isn't announced to the public yet, or if it's um, just a bigger project in general, uh, then internally we can also support with making sure that everything is where it's supposed to be, either with internal people or with external testers. Um, from there, you move on to, uh, you've, you've uh, got a patch note list, you've confirmed that uh, the fixes that were meant to be in there are in there properly, and we also help with communicating what's going out there to the public. So um, you have a lot of people that are asking like, hey, how about this thing? How about this other thing that was reported? Um, and then we can help uh, report back to the public, like this is what was fixed and this is how it was fixed. Um, so they're, they're all along the process, we're able to um, support just to either offer a couple extra hands, uh, extra eyes, different perspective. Um, yeah, basically from, from the moment that feedback is reported to reporting that follow-up back to the public. <coughs> So what sort of tools do you, I mean, aside from Discord, I mean, you've got all of this data coming in from all these different aspects. And this, is not, this isn't even accounting any kind of like data that's being captured in the game, but you've got feedback coming in from Discord and from Twitter and from forums and like two support email addresses, which is actually shows the age of how things are going. And the fact that my first thought was people still email things into support, but I guess- Yeah, they do. yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Why would you email somebody when you can just rant and rave and bitch on Twitter? You know, it's, but how do you- Yeah, but not everyone are, has Twitter. 
World shocking news. Not everyone has Twitter. <laughs> what a concept. The how what tools do you use to to manage all of that? Right. So what's most important for us is that the people that are collecting that feedback have uh, an agile, fast way of managing that data. So we will always just start with an Excel sheet or a Google sheet to be able to uh, make sure that everyone has access and everyone can report the most vital information very quickly. Uh, and that will just be a short description, like a name and a short description of what's going on. Um, make sure that footage is reported, um, that we have a date assigned, and then a developer can start following up on, hey, this is something that was intended, something that I can fix. Uh, these are the ways that it, it can be fixed. Maybe it, uh, a, a different, uh, a specific patch version will be assigned. So we, we'll have a um, just an overview of all the different kinds of feedback that are coming in. Um, if it is a bigger or more complex project, then maybe um, we'll move to a, a specific bug tracking database. Sometimes a developer will uh, provide one, but not everyone uh, is technical. Not everyone is equally well-versed with working with bug tracking databases. So that is something that tends not, not to be used as much uh, when development is already a bit further. So it's more for uh, the very heavy bug tracking load for bigger teams in particular. So it, it again, depends on what kind of project, what stages it is in, um, and then making sure that the entire team is as enabled as possible to help in any way they can. All right, so we've only got a few minutes left because Indy's got a, a hard stop. He's got, he's got a meeting. He has to go be professional. Uh, if you've got questions, to try <laughs> the professional as one can be with a mohawk i guess exactly the uh if you've got questions for journey pop them in the chat wherever you're watching we will see it it all comes together in one big handy dandy you know stream for us uh and keep in mind too that you know Junie as well as all of our guests are on our Discord server, and so you can always ask us there. Uh, it's Discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. So, are there are there any like final points, anything we we haven't hit that we absolutely should have in terms of you know the value that a publisher adds? to a project outside of, you know, just giving them, giving the developer money and, and, and marketing it, Gina? Mm, so I think uh, something that I also want to emphasize is recently we've been working with a few developers um, that we started very small with. And from there, we've been building up the relationship. We've been building up trust. So where initially we'd be doing, um, we would be doing the digital publishing for their very first game. They would then also start helping us with, hey, this other game needs some art assets. Can you can you help us right now? Um, we also have this game that needs some art optimization, but the studio only has programmers. Uh, can you help us with that? And along the way, that relationship became bigger and bigger. And more intense and now they are doing a very big project with us like um they're doing one of our first party own ip uh projects and that means that working with us and building up that long-term relationship can also give you some continuity for your company because we will if if you're delivering well for us 
then we're going to ask you for help. If we feel comfortable with the communication with you, we want to work with you more because apparently that there's a synergy and we're doing something right together. So by now, I think we've got like half of their team on our biggest project. And that is a relationship that started three, four years ago. And first we did a couple small things and now suddenly we're basically feeding half of their team and for the coming one and a half year. So that is something um, that we're seeing with a couple of other partners that we've been working with where um, we will do their next title at retail. And then after that, we might do a port for them. And maybe in the future, we're going to do digital publishing for them as well. Um, or it's someone that is helping us out with, with a, a fire that we have, and then we're going to do something bigger with them the next time. And that way, you can also um, build up a bit of, of security, continuity for your own team. And yeah, yeah it, it's not just the long-term relationship of us publishing your projects, but also us making sure that all of the resources in your team are being used as well as possible. So if you have some leftover uh, concept artists, for example, that aren't working on something for two months, having publishers or relationships that might be able to use uh, the people that you have, that's also something to think about. And, and, and part of it gets back to, you know, just ask, you know. And, Absolutely. And, and that's what a lot of folks aren't, that comfortable doing because they're afraid that they'll be perceived as as inadequate or they can't handle a project or something along those lines but you know it's the same as dealing you know with any group that aggregates talent you know like a like our firm or, or a publisher if you need access to something you need like a new artist yeah. or you need music or you know something along those lines or you need funds for additional kits or you need access to a new platform or um, your contact with a platform holder hasn't been responding for three weeks or you're struggling with this tech problem that your programmers can't seem to figure out and maybe one of our partner devs has done it three times so they know what they're doing like that is one of the points that's that's also on my list like let us be your first line of help ask us if you're struggling we may not have the answer but we'll either know someone that does or we're going to do our best and help you find it so like that's also part of that long-term relationship we're not here to like review your milestone and pay you when you make it and then don't pay you if you don't make it uh, we're here to in it with you like we want to help you be successful in all honesty for our sake as much as for yours very true all right. If you've got any questions, this is, this is the last call. We got to let Indy go. The, I, I have a question. Go ahead, dude. Go ahead. Um, can we have a tour of of uh, your shelves behind your desk? <laughs> and and I also exactly want I, I also want to know how neat is your desk? Uh, my desk is empty. My desk is actually always empty, what and the concept. same applies to uh, <laughs> largely to my inbox. So I will always make sure that I morph my inbox into either tasks to do or I just follow them up. So that is part well, of I my strategy sometimes. of staying I safe. I morph my inbox into a task list that I never look at. So, I mean, it's therefore the inbox is clean. 
but it's just another list you know i i like to not have like more than 10 emails in my inbox my yeah, wife exactly. has like fifty thousand. yeah i can't do that <laughs> I can't do that either. I can't do that either. Okay, let's see the tour before we go. Right. So uh, ever since I first got a Game Boy Pocket and Pokemon Yellow and Tetris, I've been collecting consoles. So this is actually only what I have here with my mom. I have way more. But basically out of all consoles uh, that are sort of common... Uh, I am missing from the Pong machine all the way up to the newest generation. I do not have a Nintendo Switch. Uh, I do not have a PlayStation 4 Pro or an Xbox One S or an Xbox One X. But I have just about everything else. Do you have a 3 do so, uh, No, that one I do not. But I'm oh. not sure how common it was in the Netherlands. I don't know how common it was so, in Europe. Yeah. But it was the so first CD-driven console. You know, it did come I, have, out. I have everything from like Atari 2600. I have a video pack, an MSI. I have, um, let's see, what else? I have a, a, a picture set of most of it. Um, then I have everything Game Boy, so Game Boy Micro and Advance, Advance SP. Um, and then over here, I basically have uh, Wii, Wii U, GameCube, I have several GameCubes, uh, NES, SNES, uh, I don't have an Nintendo 64 here, but uh, Sega Dreamcast, um, Xbox, a lot of Playstations, uh, the Playstation handhelds too, of course. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically everything retro that you can think of, I primarily just don't have the newest. That's and there's funny. a Oshawott plushie and there is also all the way at the top uh, one of the special editions that we did for all boy specifically so there's a whole lot of stuff in there Wait, is that a is that a fallout fat boy up there at the top yes it is See? that one is not mine that's that's my partner's so i i mentioned I mentioned that I don't have a Switch and a Pro and an X and an S, but he does. So I guess our family is complete regardless. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's because funny. Because you're supposed to share when you're an adult, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Exactly. So what, what was your other question, Andy? Was uh, it, was that was just how neat her desk was, and that's it. Oh, yes. Yeah, but mine. I got to go because I got a meeting in three minutes. All right. Yeah. So... Junie, thank you very much for coming on the show. This will be live in um, a few hours on our Anchor. podcast. Don't forget, if you go to IndieGame.Business, you can get your ticket to our next virtual business event where you can pitch your game to publishers or look for contract work. Uh, we got over 50 companies lined up so far. That starts on the 7th, uh, right? coming up on the 7th and 8th. And 12 Days of Indie is coming up soon. Oh, oh, let's put Junie on the spot. Junie, will you, can you contribute some codes to uh, 12 Days of Indie for Toys for Tots to help, you know, kids? Oh, absolutely. See see how easy this is when you have them on live camera, Indy? Um, Just pressure oh, them, yeah. That actually reminds me that uh, everyone that pings me on Discord, the first 10 uh, can get a Steam key for Dog Duty, a game that we've got in early access, real-time strategy game. Um, think Command and like, Conquer, that kind of... see a dog? <laughs> no, it's Dog Duty. 
So your dog poop. Play on the play on the word, but yeah, ping me on Discord oh. and I'll have a key for you. I'm gonna type very quickly here. <laughs> there, there's our Discord. There we go. Um, but yeah, all right. Thank, thank you, you guys so much. So much. This is awesome. Yes, thank you Andy, too. Have fun in your meeting, and, and Junie, have a great weekend. Yeah, and then um, I'm gone for next week. Bahamas, baby. Enjoy have fun. Week. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.